Well, welcome everybody, and thank you for being here with us. Is if I had told you a year ago that the Houston Texans would be in the position that they are in now at the quarterback position, you would have never, ever believed is look at the roster of available quarterbacks that the Houston Texans have right now. The Raiders, the Dolphins, and the Washington football team are all reportedly still interested in trading for Deshaun Watson, despite 22 different women accusing him of sexual assault. The Texans have another new quarterback. They signed free agent quarterback Jeff Driscoll this week. And welcome to another episode of the Turn Up For What podcast talking your Houston Texans straight from the Great British Isles and we're in stage three of the off-season program now. 70 or so players have shown up despite the labour dispute with the NFLPA and the clubs. Of course, number four is not there. Another SI article out on Friday. It never quite seems to stop with this team, but this week I caught up with legend and Hall of Fame writer John McLean to talk some Texans, put some stuff into the rearview mirror of this offseason as we draw a line and nobody better to do that with. Here's my conversation with John McLean of the Houston Chronicle. And this week I'm joined by the Hall of Famer and legend of Houston sports, John McLean. John, has this been the most eventful off-season in, in your memory? Oh, no. No, not even close. When you've got a franchise for two years, it's thinking about leaving the city where it was founded. That is a much more tumultuous, interesting, fascinating, and flabbergasting off-season. That was when the Oilers were threatening to move to... Tennessee, and of course they did. Yeah, because I think, yeah, I suppose in the heart that people in Houston have been through, it puts it all into perspective to a degree. I mean, I think fan sentiment's probably been at an all-time low in recent memory, but how does that compare perhaps to, you know, those days that you're talking about there? Well, nothing compares to when you're losing your team. That was in 19, took, uh, started in 1995 when the Oilers were trying to get a new a lease at the Astrodome and the Astrodome, the company that ran it was run by the Houston Astros and they would not give them a new lease because they were in the process of being sold and they wanted that lease to be maximized. So they said no. So the Oilers started looking around the country. They looked at Baltimore. The owner thought it took too long to get to Baltimore for game days. So Bud Adams had them look at Tennessee and Tennessee was serious after they had pursued the New Jersey Devils NHL team. And they told uh, the Oilers, yeah, we'll negotiate with you, but we want an exclusive period. And if we give you what you want, we want uh, we want it in writing that you'll come. We don't want to be used to get a better stadium deal. So they did it, and, uh, and it took two years after the 1996 season. They moved, and uh, Houston was devastated. So that was a two-year process you went through games during the season where the crowds are like 15,000 and it was just really really ugly and it tore the heart out of the city what the Texans are going through right now it's amazing because two seasons ago I would say this time last year they were coming off a AFC South title their fourth in five years they uh, were coming off a playoff victory over Buffalo 
They had built a 24-0 lead at Kansas City in the divisional round, which they choked. But everybody had high hopes for them. Picked uh, Most people picked them to win the division for the fifth time in six years, despite the trade of DeAndre Hopkins to Arizona by coach slash general manager Bill O'Brien. And then they played, in my 45 years of covering the NFL, they played the toughest schedule I've ever seen. They started 0-4. They fired O'Brien. And it was just all downhill from that point. And it ended up, of course, with a new GM, Nick Casario, a new coach, and David Culley, 17 new coaches. As it stands right now, 50 new players, including 42 veterans. And then, of course, the Deshaun Watson controversy that is ongoing. And uh, whenever he gets his legal issues resolved, I expect him to be traded. Thing is, we don't know when that'll be. Don't know if it'll be. In the off season, at the start of the season, at the trading deadline in October, or it could be before next year's draft. And of all the points, John, and I remember 2019 sort of feeling like things were starting to come together a bit. Um, and of all the moments and all the things you saw, and obviously 2020 was a different year for many reasons, but where where did you think, while you were watching, while you were writing, while you were commentating, that where was the first moment you thought things might be going wrong here? When I looked at the schedule, I thought they would get off to a bad start. But the the big problem was when they they were favored. I'm trying to remember. They were favored against Minnesota. They lost to Minnesota here. Minnesota was not a good team either. So they had lost. They started off the season losing some close games, and then when they lost that with the Minnesota start 04, as you can imagine the. The criticism of the team, uh, the criticism of the team, not just not just by fans, but also by media. It was just unbelievable. And so the owner Cal McNair, I was stunned that he fired Bill O'Brien because O'Brien had been here. That was his seventh year, and he had been he had been the GM in 2018 without the title, and then he got it in 2019. But this season, last season, they started at Kansas City. They lost, of course. Then they played Baltimore. They were lost. Then they went to Pittsburgh, and they lost. Then they came home against Minnesota, and they lost that game by eight points, and they, that's when they fired him. And I was stunned they did it. I wouldn't have been surprised after the season, but I was surprised because he was losing control of the team. He had some blowups with the players. And so they promoted defensive coordinator Romeo Cornell to his interim head coach and he did as well as he could but they missed they had players like will fuller the best receiver suspended for the last five games randall cobb slot receiver missed the last six with injuries they had injuries deshaun watson played great he had his career best in every stat he was tremendous but he couldn't translate to victories they were three and eight one score games and uh, it certainly wasn't his fault they had frustrations like being inside Indianapolis's two-yard line at the end of two games and fumbling both times and having a chance to win. A game at Cleveland, they were inside the five, chance to win, and couldn't do it. So they were the worst. Their defense was worst against the run. Their offense was second worst in rushing. Their defense forced only nine turnovers. That is the second fewest in the NFL since 1980. So that's why they've had uh, so much 
turnover uh, during the off season and continue to have turnover because I've never seen a team at this point have 50 new players, including 42 veterans. And that's why everybody thinks they're going to be the worst team in the league uh, this season. In in the midst of all the sort of Ferrari of the off season, uh, when things seem to kind of be getting it quite towards their peak in terms of frustration, certainly from my view, and certainly all the guys I speak to in Houston was kind of reaching. You spoke to Cal and one of the few people that he probably spoken to out with the organization's you know direct team media, Mark John and Drew and all the guys there. And when you when you spoke to, him, do you kind of get an opinion that his his views very much aligned with the fans, or is it, or is it, is he looking at it in a very different light? Because I think people are frustrated by the lack of quality, and you think of you know you talk about the PDs last year, and and that, that those definitely took a bit of wind out of the sails, and the team kind of looked like they might be getting together, but the defense was never you know of a quality that would probably allow us to win his games. But and sometimes I think Cal's drawn a lot of criticism, and people are probably limited in his faith. He's not the same man as his father was, but what do you th- what do you think his assessment of this team has been and how it's changed since Casario's coming because his messaging and the few times he speaks to the media has changed from the initial press conference to say the golf day uh, River Oaks a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, we've talked to, I talked to Casario on Saturday. I've talked to Cal McNair at, at charity events in each of the last three weeks. And they talk, they're happy to talk. They're very cooperative and they don't give anything of substance. And that's by, Design. Cal McNair took over the running of the team in 2018 when his dad was battling cancer, and he died in November of that year. And they went 11 and five and won the division. The next year they went 10 and six. And then when he was fired, O'Brien after an 04 start last year, his popularity was never higher. And the McNair family's creed for running the team to me is what an owner should be. An owner shouldn't be making personnel decisions like happens in Dallas and Philadelphia and used to happen in Washington and may still. The owners, and, and this is the McNairs, they spend a lot of money on players. Last year they spent more money than any team in the league on players. And they hire people that they think are good. And when they hire those people, they let them do their jobs. They stay out of personnel decisions. So Bill O'Brien wants to trade Davion Clowney and DeAndre Hopkins, and if Cal McNair didn't like it, he wouldn't interfere because that's not what you do when you hire your people. If they don't do the job you want, you fire them. And so uh, that's why those two trades were made after the 2018-2019 season. So the McNairs, they want to know what's going on. Cal McNair goes over to practice every day, and he has meetings with Jack Easterby as executive VP of football operations who runs everything but personnel. And he talks to the GM and the coach sometimes, and then he fills his mother in. Uh, she's a controlling owner on what's going on that day or every other day. And that's how they've operated their franchise since they started in 2002. And the criticism that Cal McNair gets the most is because he didn't fire Jack Easterby and because he's given Jack Easterby his executive VP of football ops so much authority. Like Bill O'Brien, Nick Casario has it in his contract that he is in charge of all personnel. And Casario knows only one way, the Patriot way. And I always think the Patriot way is the worst way, unless you get Bill Belichick and, and Tom Brady, which, of course, he doesn't. And so that's the way he's operating. 
and uh, a lot of people don't like the the secrecy, the limitations on the media, especially at a time when the Texans are having trouble selling tickets. They they've uh, they can sell out. They've sold out every game in franchise history, dating back to their inaugural preseason in 2002 up until last season when COVID-19 limited seating. And then now teams are opened up to sell as many tickets and suites as they want, but they have not been very media friendly. They're fan friendly. But right now the fans are really down on the team. Number one, because everybody thinks they're going to be terrible. Number two, because of the whole Watson fiasco. And number three, with all the changes they've made on the roster with more to come this season, they don't see any hope. This is like a bridge season. The real, rebuilding to me will be in 2022 when they have all their draft choices plus they'll have more room under the salary cap and they'll know a little bit about and they'll know a lot about all these players they brought in this year whether any of them deserve new contracts or contract extensions because of everybody that Casario has signed the only one with a contract of more than two years is a punter Cameron Johnston yeah, and it's been a strange off season, I think, and Easterby's probably a name I was something I probably wasn't going to mention, but since you brought it up, John, is he misunderstood? Uh no, I don't think he's misunderstood. He can't be misunderstood if you don't talk to the media and he's never talked to the media and in his defense, no executive VP of football ops talks to the media on any team. It's the owner if he wants to, the coach and GM when they want to, assistant coaches and then the players, other personnel people don't talk. Head of personnel, college personnel, pro personnel, none of those guys talk to the media. So Easterby, I don't think, has ever spoken to us. And because of that, there's a lot of people that have questions about him. Sports Illustrated did two in-depth investigations of Easterby, and a lot of what they uncovered, even though it was anonymous, was really ugly. And so... The McNairs have continued to support him because he has convinced them that he and Casario have eight Super Bowl rings between them, six for Casario and two for Easterby. They've convinced the McNairs they know how to build an organization and win a Super Bowl. And right or wrong, the McNairs continue to support him. Yeah, because I think when you see the Andre Johnson comments, you know, and he's been pretty vocal more than he's probably been at any point in his career. There's, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of heat there. It doesn't seem to die down. But Sports Illustrated, you mentioned there, they brought out an article again on Friday, um, and there was a mention in there that um, Cal's personal lawyer or, or lawyer firm um, made an attempt to mediate the situation. There was a form signed by both Watson and his agent David Magaletta. What did you make of that? It was a long one, but what did you make of that story? And did it? Did it really tell us anything new? And was that a shock about the about the mediation attempt for the Texans? No, that had come out the week before when uh, Tony Busby put out there that the Texans had begged them to settle. Mike Florio on Pro Football Talk did a great job. Sports Illustrated came back with it. Of course, they've been working on that thing for months. So almost everything in that story, it's meant, not meant for people in Houston. It's meant for people around the country. I've read every word of every lawsuit. I've read everything in the Houston Chronicle. I've talked to as many people as I can. And so there was very little in there that was new. And the thing about the McNairs, they got a lot of lawyers. And one of them, and we don't know who, 
He knew he knows Tony Busby and Rusty Harden, the two uh, attorneys, very well. As does Cal McNair. It's funny he knows Rusty Harden very well and has for thirty years, but he hardly knows Busby, even though they live on the same street. And to show you how the media can be, they tried to some national media tried to portray it as as McNair went to Busby and somehow got him to do all this to make Watson look bad because they live on the same street. And they pointed out when Johnny Manziel came out of college that Busby flew planes begging McNair to to draft Manziel and put up billboards. Well, the problem was Cal McNair didn't live on that street. That was for Bob McNair. But as so many media people do are not accountable, they took it to mean Cal McNair, and that's what they wrote. And broadcast, and plus their street, which is the wealthiest in Texas. If you're a neighbor of somebody and you live on mansions and you might be a block away, that is a long block with a big esplanade in the middle. So it's not like these guys are edging their yards or planting flowers. And, hey, Tony, hey, Cal, how are you? They need a bullhorn to be heard uh, across their yard. So there was never anything to that. So he has attorneys, and the attorney that one of the attorneys that knew him approached him about doing mediation. They said no, and that was that. Now, did McNair know about it? We don't know. I asked him about it uh, the, over the weekend, and he said, I'll stand by what the statement said to, to Sports Illustrated was that he knew about it. Well, the key is, did he know about it beforehand? Did he approve it? Did he find out about it afterward? And I'll say this, no attorney for a family is going to do something like that without letting the, the client know. Now, why would he want to do mediation? But what, that was a long time ago. Had they been able to have it settled, then they would have traded him, and they were hoping to get three first-round picks, two second-round picks, and a starting defensive player because they had eight teams interested, six that said they were seriously interested. So the idea starting around April 1st was for Nick Casario to start negotiations with these teams and cut a deal right before the draft. And, of course, the 22 lawsuits are still there. The NFL investigation still there. Police is investigating one or two of the cases. So nobody is interested in trading right now and won't be until these uh, lawsuits have either gone to court or been settled. And I'll say this, there are some serious accusations in there. Our, the lawsuits are all on our website, HoustonChronicle.com. And as I said earlier, I've read them all, and uh, it is it is uh, disturbing. And Watson's innocent until proven guilty, but the plaintiffs, of course, you know, they deserve to be heard, and some of them have. And so I have no idea what's going to happen in this, but I do believe at some point after the legal issues are behind Watson, he'll be traded. They won't give him away. Uh, because, and I wrote a column last week that's on our sports website, TexasSportsNation.com, about who, what, when, and where. And I found some of the teams, four of the teams that were interested before drafting quarterbacks in the first round, so I've, I've taken them out. Two of them, Carolina and Denver, were very interested, both traded for veterans, but I'm not so sure Carolina wouldn't trade Sam Darnold and some number one picks and more to get Watson. And I know Denver, just because the Broncos signed or traded for Teddy Bridgewater, doesn't mean they're happy with their quarterback situation. And knowing knowing how uh, 
how much they wanted Watson before, I would imagine whenever he's available, they would be right in there with the other teams. And I pointed out a team like Washington. If, if Watson was playing for Washington and he was a starting quarterback instead of Ryan Fitzpatrick, they'd be considered a Super Bowl contender. New Orleans with Jameis Winston and Taysom, Taysom Hill, they're not the same as they were with Drew Brees. Now, I haven't had any idea that they'd be interested, but as I wrote the team that should be interested, and the Texans better hope they're interested, would be Philadelphia. Philadelphia's got a second-year quarterback, Jalen Hurts, to be the starter. He was 1-3 and three as a starter. He completed 52% as a rookie at a 77% rating. Now, he may show dramatic improvement and win multiple Super Bowls, but they have two number ones in 2022. If Carson Wentz plays 70% of the plays and the Colts go to the playoffs, the second-round pick becomes a number one. If he plays 75% and they don't go to the playoffs, that second-round pick goes to number one. So if Wentz stays healthy, the Eagles are going to have three number one picks. So maybe the Texans could convince them to part with two of them, and it's something in 2023 for uh, Deshaun Watson. And, John, do you think it's a foregone conclusion at every point uh, that Watson goes? Um, and and do you think the Texans' view internally, and I know you've kind of talked about Casario's new regime being pretty tight with the media and, and not, not a lot of information coming out and not a lot of interviews, opportunity and availability, but do you think there's any under any circumstance the Texans try and make this work? And... When this all comes out in the wash one day, what do you? How do you think Watson would articulate the reasons why he stated he wanted to leave? Well, first of all, he wants to be traded. He does not want to be back here. And if you think about it, common sense tells you, considering everything that's going on here right now, when it's over for him, he would want to be anywhere but Houston. And and they would not have. They've got five quarterbacks on the roster. They cut one yesterday, Ryan Finley. That gives them four. Watson's not going to show up. Now, he makes $10.5 million. If he misses the mandatory minicamp, that's $93,000 fine. No big deal. But when they get to training camp, it's $50,000 a day. Then if he holds out during the season, then he'll miss his game check. So somebody figured out if he missed everything, it cost him about $20 million and he makes 10.5. And the attorney who he's hired, Rusty Arden, Rusty Arden is one of the most expensive in the country, so he's paying a lot for him. So maybe he would show up for training camp with it and, and say he hurt his back the first day or his knee, something wouldn't show up, and so he couldn't participate in drills. If he shows up, then, of course, he would be paid. And there's the commissioner's exemplist that the commissioner, when he's investigating people, will put players on that list. It's not up to the team or them. It's up to the discretion of Roger Goodell. And Watson should hope he's on the exempt list all season because if he is, he'll be paid his base salary. If he's not, he's going to have to hold out. And if he showed up, then the Texans, of course, would say, hey, you're our quarterback, we're going to play you. But I don't ever see him stepping on the field in a game again for the Texans because there's just too much damage here and the fact that he wants out so bad you know he's not just going to have an epiphany and all of a sudden change his mind that he was adamant about early in the off season they said they weren't going to trade him in in january then when the new coach david gully met with him 
I think it was in February, and uh, Watson explained he still wanted out. Cully tried to talk him out of it. He couldn't do it. So that's when they decided we'll trade it. But they wanted to get through free agency in March before they started trade talks in early April. So I don't think he'll ever play another down with the Texans. And, John, if you sat down with him in five years' time, what do you th- how, how do you think he'd articulate the, the core reasons why he wanted out of Houston? I don't think he'll do that. I don't think uh, he'll do that anytime soon. I'm sure he didn't want to go through a rebuild. He didn't like the way the team was the direction of the team. He didn't like the way it was being run. And he his agent, David Mulligetta from Austin, did a good job of getting Jalen Ramsey out of Jacksonville. He was unhappy. He, uh, he was miserable, and he wanted to go somewhere else. So he orchestrated a plan and got him out, traded to the Rams, he had a great season, got a big new contract, and got out of Jacksonville. And so uh, what the NFL doesn't want is agents being able to broker deals like they do in the NBA. That's the last thing they want. And so uh, Watson has a no-trade clause, but at this point, I think it would be if they said to him, say they wanted to trade in Philadelphia and he didn't want to go, and they said, hey, you can sit out and lose all this money. You can come back and be on the bench, or you can go accept this trade. And I can't imagine at this point he would block a trade knowing how bad he wants to get away from the Texans in Houston. Yeah, because I think for the fans that's probably the hardest thing to swallow, isn't it? Because it it feels all so unnecessary uh, and I was talking with Brandon Scott last week and you know it was the way he put it it was it felt like it, it didn't need to be like this um and you and it seems like we're kind of heading towards a kind of sorry end and a rebuild which is definitely going to be well into the medium term uh, what do you think the next sort of three to five year outlook for this team is I know a lot can change in a hurry in this league we see that every year but what do you think the, the most likely outcome or, or the desired outcome from Casario and whoever the coach might be? Because it kind of feels like Cully and this coaching staff isn't talked about a lot because a lot of it feels quite temporary. Well, he's got a five-year contract, Cully does. Casario's got a six-year contract. and uh, But the McNairs are not shy about paying people off. They've been paying three GMs. They're still paying three GMs. So money has not been an issue for them. So if and Casario, right now, people like what he's doing. Out with the old, in with the new. Just change it. Don't don't keep much of the status quo. One reason J.J. Watt has to be released is because he thought it was going to be a while, and he's at, at the point in his career where he doesn't want to have to go through that. And so you don't know. Because of free agency and the draft, and we've never seen Nick Casario have full control before he was bill belichick's right-hand man and people that worked with him think he'll do well but you never know and we're not going to know until probably 2023 have an accurate barometer of what he's done and as far as cully it's almost unfair giving him this crew so i can expansion team and expect anything when you don't have expectations of a, a bad record's not going to be too surprising I think the only thing be surprising if they if they won as many games as last year, people would be shocked. If they won more, then people would be double shocked. The schedule, unlike last year, they're playing third third place schedule, is not near as difficult. But 
They don't have Watson. In order to turn this team around, Bill O'Brien took it from 214 to 9-7 the first year. That's not going to happen here. He had talent. He needed a quarterback. Took him until 2017 to get a quarterback. So they got to get another quarterback. And to me, the single most important thing that they're going to do in 2021, at some point, they have to see if their top draft choice, third-round pick, uh, Mills, uh, Got Mills' first Davis, name. Davis Mills. Uh, Davis Mills. If Davis Mills can play. And a lot of people want him to start right away, which to me is preposterous because he only played 14 games at Stanford, started 11-5 last season. He needs time to learn. He's really smart. He had a 36 on his Wonderlick test. That would make him one of the smartest people in the draft and one of the smartest people in the league. So he won't have a problem with that. But getting out and experiencing things on the field that he only experienced in 11 starts at Stanford, that is a huge difference. So I've targeted, coming off their bye week, they have nine games, then they have their bye week, then they have eight. Give him two weeks to prepare for a game at Tennessee, then three consecutive games at home, and watching him over the last eight games, plus watching him in practice and preseason and in the meetings and the way he carries himself, they should be able to find out if they think he's the guy. If he is, and that's a long shot. But if he were to be the guy, then that would hold, change their approach to the 2022 draft when they may have the top pick. Then they could trade down. They could take a defensive player, position player, and not have to target a quarterback. But I think he's not going to be able to prove that. So they'd have to target a quarterback in 2022, and even though there's no – Trevor Lawrence, which there rarely is, there are a lot of quarterback prospects. Yeah, I think, John, I, think, I remember when you were talking about it, and that was probably one of the, the times that I felt the most hope in the last couple of years. And, you you know, you thought you would see, you said he was the best quarterback since Warren Moon, and you thought that Sean Watson could bring the City a championship. Will there be, you know, when it's all said and done, you've got an illustrious career, will that be one of the biggest regrets, something that you thought you might saw, you might have seen and you should, perhaps should have seen? Will that, do you think, will that be something you regret or has there been bigger blunders in Houston sports? Now, the one thing that would disappoint me the most is ever since I started, I always wanted to cover a Super Bowl team in Houston. The closest I've come was when the former Oilers, the Titans, went to the Super Bowl in 99 and I was covering the NFL then. So I covered a lot of their games, all their, all their playoff games. Super Bowl, they still had a lot of people on the team in the organization were here. I know them. So even though it wasn't for Houston, that was as good as it's gotten for me. The Texans have not been beyond the second round of the playoffs. We have not had a team in the AFC championship game since the 79 season. We have not hosted a championship game here since 1961. When the Oilers, or 1960, when the Oilers beat the Chargers for the first AFL championship. And so Houston people are starved. That's why if they hadn't blown that 24 0 lead at Arrowhead Stadium, yeah. had they held on to that, they would have hosted the uh, uh, AFC championship game against the former Oilers. And as I've told people, maybe nobody outside Tennessee and Texas would care, but man, that would have been a big deal down here to play them for a chance to go to the Super Bowl. But, of course, that never happened because they choked that lead. I saw the Oilers choke playoff leads. I saw them blow playoff games. And 
So that would be my big my regret is I never got to cover a Super Bowl team in Houston. And in terms of this season, John, is there stuff you are looking forward to? Are you, are you going to be back in the press box? You know, is there going to be in person media availability again? How's that looking? Well, last year everything in the off season was done on Zoom, and then we got to training camp, and they let us come to practice. A tier of media people. I was in it, and I was the pool reporter afterward who talked to Bill O'Brien, and then we would go back into our media trailer and do Zoom interviews. And then when the season started, everything was Zoom. We couldn't go to practice, couldn't go to the facility, which is NRG Stadium, except on game days. And uh, so every 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 press box had protocols, but it was weird to go to a game and then do interviews afterward on Zoom. So we don't know this year. Like uh, OTAs are going on now. I think the minimum a team can allow the media is three, so we'll probably get three because everything that Texans do is the league minimum. And then when training camp starts, I'm guessing we can go. But I'm going to guess that we're not going to be able to interview people in person. We'll be doing Zooms again. As far as the season, I don't know. I do think this. Some teams during the draft brought their general manager and coaches in and had the media go to the facilities and interviewed them. You know, they were socially distanced. Texans didn't do that. I would imagine some teams will, that are not media-friendly will milk milk it as long as they can to keep the media away. Like, are we going to be able to go back in dressing rooms every day and talk to players like we used to, where we could BS with them, talk to them about their families, their alma maters, and things like that? for 45 minutes are we going to be doing zooms i would imagine some are going to let the guys back but i imagine uh the best we would get is the way we had it with watson and watt and the coach and assistant coaches would come in the media room and stand at the podium and we were six feet from them before we ever needed to be six feet and we'd probably interview them like that but i'd be surprised if they let us all back in the dressing room this season and how much do you miss that, John? Because that's probably been the staple of like a lot of your reporting career and the, the relationships you make and and then that information that gets passed on to the fans. I mean, that must take a huge element out of your job. I know it's changed a lot over the years, technology and all that kind of stuff, right from the early days of the Oilers, but that must change the job completely for you, right? Well, at least you could go up and introduce yourself to players. You could talk to them. Now, I had much better relationships with the Oilers because the media... There were no media restrictions like there are now. We could watch practice. We could talk to any assistant coach when we wanted. We could interview them uh, uh, before practice. We could hang out in the dressing room, interview them after practice. The players didn't want to talk. They'd say, hey, I'm going to the shower. I'm going to the weight room. I'm going home. But now, boy, you've got to stay at arm's length. They do everything but have a taser if you get too close. But at least you could still talk to a person one-on-one, even if you were severely restricted on how long that is. The league minimum for open locker room is that is 45 minutes. And so, man, if it's 45 minutes and you're still in an interview, buzzer goes off and you're out of there. And apart from obviously watching Baylor football this year, what road trips do you think, or in your experience, are the best ones on this slate this year? 
Uh, let's see. Uh, they play. I'm always in the first game I'm interested in is Arizona. Uh, when they play against Watt and Hopkins on October 24th, I'm always yeah. interested in the AFC South games, who they start the season against. My wife's already told me I'm going to San Francisco with you. I said, the problem is it's not San Francisco, it's Santa Clara. And <laughs> yeah. she says, well, we're going to be in San Francisco, and you can drive to Santa Clara. And I said, well, that's like driving from Houston to Galveston, 45 miles on game day. And she said, well, that's your problem. So, uh, they have tripped to Miami. I always like to go to Miami. I've not seen their stadium since it's been renovated. I went to the Orange Bowl for years. And I went to the uh, whatever they changed the name so many times, that one. But I think three years ago they spent about $450 million to put most of a roof over it. So I'm really fired up about seeing that. And then one of my favorite cities, people think I'm crazy, is Cleveland. And uh, I love Cleveland. I've been there Gosh, over 40 years, and they've changed it so much. Downtown, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, great great place to go. Canton and the Hall of Fame's an hour and 15 minutes away. So I just, there's more people in the media who've been covering the Browns longer than any other team in the league. When I get there, I see people all the time that I've known since, like, late 70s or do like me are still covering that team and, and when the browns won last year i didn't give a damn about the browns their players their coaches i was happy for the media because those guys had suffered so long and there's nothing like covering a team that is winning yeah i think so and well i've got tickets for the the buffalo road trips i'm hoping obviously borders open etc but i hope hopefully that's going to be the one we've got in terms of the atmosphere and in Orchard Park, but um, in terms of the, the exp- atmosphere, yeah, the atmosphere is great in Orchard Park. The problem is it's such a pain to get to. Like I hate going to Foxborough because it's such a pain yeah. to get there from Boston and in Buffalo. It's it's a long drive. It's an easy drive, but man, with those fans, they get there early. They clog up the road in and out, and they celebrate. It is a tremendous atmosphere. I was there for the biggest choke job in NFL history, the Oilers and the Bills in a wild card game after the 92 season. And I've never seen fans celebrating more, celebrating louder and celebrating throughout the night. Yeah. It's probably the opposite of the, of the hard rock stadium in Miami. I think it's overdue some investment, but it's a, it's a real football stadium. I think, and hopefully that will be the one that we can make it this season. In terms of the the season, John, is is there stuff you are looking forward to in terms of this team? And do you think there's apart from Davis Mills, is there anything you think we can take, or is it? I think that the question probably a lot of people would have is, would you hit the fast forward button now and and start dealing some draft picks and picking up some high end talent for next year? Because it feels in some ways this could be a write off. There could be some silver linings written in there, but it it seems hard to envisage at this stage. Well, if Nick Sario starts trading draft choices, he ought to get fired. That's what put them in the position they're in. Was Bill O'Brien started trading draft choices, two ones and a two for Laramie Tunsil and uh, Kenny Stills. Yeah. Stills is no longer on the team, and Tunsil's really good, a perennial Pro Bowl tackle, but we say they gave two ones for him and a two for Stills. So he better hang on to those picks because they're going to be high. And uh, and so I'm thinking about this season. The, the Usually I hate preseason games because they have so many new players, and then Mills I think will play a lot. I'm not interested in any of the quarterbacks. I'm there except Mills. As far as all the other players, 
other than new players and seeing how they do with their new teams. You know, all of them are not going to make the team. All of them are the ones that do are not going to be very good, but a few of them will emerge out of that group because one thing Casario has done, he signed guys who were hurt last season who had played well before that, banking on them recovering. He's done that with a lot of players. He's had some others who played well with the team. Then they didn't, or they went to a new team in free agency. It didn't work, didn't fit the system. And so he's banking on a few of those guys being able to play like they did earlier in their career. And one of the things he's done, if you bring in a lot of hungry veterans who are on short-term contracts and they're hoping to impress enough where they can get a bigger contract after this season, you're going to get the best those guys have to offer. So it'll be fun watching, see who steps up and who doesn't. I picked a team to go 3-14 and only because I picked in my schedule story and predictions that Tennessee would have the division wrapped up and the Titans would rest their starters in the last game and the Texans would win to go 3-14 and and avoid the fewest tying the fewest, the record for the fewest victories in team history. I think they'll beat the Jaguars starting off. I think they'll beat the Jets here. And it's not out of the realm of possibility they don't beat Carolina here in the third game because okay. the Panthers are no good. They're not the night, yeah. Texans. But I think they could win that game and start 2-1, and one, and then the bottom falls out and they win only one more game. But the fact is, based on the way that they've gone about it, they might win a couple of games, keep them from getting the first pick, and somebody else will get the guy that's the best quarterback prospect. Yeah, do you think that, John, is it? Is it almost uh, it's going to be a bad season, but it, it might not be bad enough to get the first pick and have your have your choice of whoever the, you know, if it's the top three guys, Slovis, um, uh, what's, his, what's the three guys' name? Uh, Sam Howell and... Um, and uh, Spencer Rattler. Spencer Rattler, yeah, that's the one, yeah. As you think, Malik, I mean, there might be one emerge, but... And Malik Willis at Liberty. I wrote a column two weeks ago before his last year of college, Kyler Murray is not a starter. And uh, nobody was talking about Joe Burrow as being even a high draft choice, much less a first round pick or first overall. And then last year, Zach Wilson had to compete for his starting job. So who will be the Kyler Murray, Joe Burrow, Zach Wilson in next year's draft? I don't know. There's a lot of possibilities. And it's going to be fun watching college football season. And uh, Texans, if it's going to be bad, be like the Rockets. Be all the way bad. Be the worst. Yeah, that's it. You've got a lot of guys who've got salaries converted to signing bonus. There could be a lot of people mailing it in, not just the fans as we get down the stretch. But, John, as we go into this draft, final question, how many draft picks in the first round do you think Houston will have? And something to look forward to as that you know, as the narrative will probably turn to that probably around week 10 or 11. I think they'll have their one. I think they'll have at least one one, maybe two for Watson. They'll Whatever they deal Watson for will be something in 2022 and 2023, and maybe 2024. You can, you can only do three years ahead. But I think people will be really fired up about the 2022 draft. This year, Texans didn't have a pick in the first two rounds. They were the last team to draft. 67th overall, and that's when they took Davis Mills. And so they've been without a number one pick three of the last four years because of trades. And so people will be pumped to be able to get excited about the draft again. 
Yeah, that's it. I think Bill O'Brien perhaps and his wisdom took that away from us, but I didn't think we'd be going back to the well on the quarterback lottery this early um, after 2017, but here we are. Um, any final reflections, John, before we, we sign out? I appreciate your time and uh, you're a gentleman for coming to join us today. It's my pleasure. I'm happy to do it. And I'd say this, if you're a fan of the Houston Texans, it's going to be ugly and then it's uh, before it's going to be worse before it gets better. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. Thank you.